Amen. Well, we are back in Colossians, still in Colossians, I should say. We're going to look at verses 21 through 23 today. And, you know, last week uh, was some very heady material, and I hope you were able, by God's grace, to, to hang on and to be blessed by the glory of God. I hope that you were blown away, blown away by the redemption that has always been God's plan. And I pray that you're still sobered and grateful for the hope that is in Christ Jesus. I've prayed that for all of you this week. And today we're going to come out of the more academic and philosophical realm of understanding the scriptures and, and really stare in the face the peace that has been established between God and man. And this is known as reconciliation. So not only are we going to look at reconciliation, but look at how we even came to be reconciled to God. How did this even happen? And then we're just going to spend our time meditating on those things. So that's the plan today, to look at verse 21 under the banner of once alienated. And then we're going to look at verse 22 under the banner of now reconciled. And then we're going to look at verse 23 under the banner of continue in the faith. So we'll look at the verse, talk about it a bit, look at the next verse, talk and reflect a bit. Look at the last verse, talk, reflect a little bit. And then we're just going to meditate on what we've learned and then conclude our time together, Lord willing. So just to remind us before we jump back into the text, the Gnostic influences that are arising around uh, Colossae, they're discrediting the supremacy of Christ uh, in one way. That's one way that Christ is being discredited through the Gnostic teaching. And then another way, the legalists are doing the same thing by discrediting the work of Christ. So one is attacking his divinity and the others who are insisting that you must live the lifestyle of deprivation or that there's a way of godliness that adds to righteousness and, and spiritual living, they are taking away from the complete work of redemption in Christ. So this is what Paul is writing about. And this is why in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, We haven't ceased to pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ and love for one another, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what he's going to do is he's going to explain to them the wisdom and the riches of the knowledge of God, the mystery of Christ Jesus. He is at the heart of the matter giving a clear vision of the person and the work of Christ as the thing that's going to protect them from false teaching and false practices. It's on account of Christ alone, beloved, that anyone would ever have peace with God. It's on account of Christ alone that anyone would appear with Christ in glory at his return. And not only is it in Christ that we're reconciled, it is only in Christ that we are sanctified, and it's only in Christ that we're enabled and empowered to put off the old self and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of Christ, who is our new identity by faith. And so last week, we looked at how Jesus is God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For him, through him, and to him are all things. He's before all things. They all hold, they all hold together in him. 
Not only is he before this creation, but he is before and preeminent in all things because he's the firstborn from the dead. He has destroyed all evil. He's destroyed Satan. He's defeated death when he resurrected from the dead. And so he's the head of the church and he has reconciled all things to himself in this reconciliation Primarily, what's in view there is this cosmic eschatological, if you will, the end times. Everything is going to be made right. Everything will be perfect because of the reconciling work of Christ Jesus. And at this point, in verses 21 through 23, Paul just narrows in on this reconciliation and how that has happened to us personally and in the church. So we're coming out of the, the big view And coming into reconciliation, we have been reconciled to God. And so, let us read uh, our passage today. I'm going to start in verse 15, and then we're going to begin to walk through the text. Hear the perfect, holy words of God. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether, in, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We thank God for his word today. So staring at verse 21, once alienated, and you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Paul is quickly reminding them that before life in Christ, before knowing the hope of Christ, they were enemies of God by nature. And it was evidenced by their evil deeds. They did evil deeds because they were his enemies. They were sinful. But how does he know this about them, right? Paul's never even met these people. He's never even seen them. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says that he's never seen them face to face. These are among people who he doesn't really know. I mean, he has heard about their faith in Christ and their love for the saints from Epaphras, but he doesn't know them. He's never visited them, visited these folks. He's never been to a testimony service and heard of, of these great things that has happened in their life, you know. But he doesn't need to know them, right, to, in order to describe them as being alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, because this is everyone's condition before God. Alienated, meaning you were separated from God. 
not only separated from God in your nature because you're born in Adam, we'll talk about that, but you're separated from God also from the covenants. He has chosen Israel to reveal himself. You weren't even a part of that. This is who you were. He's connecting this alienation from God also with the mind and doing evil deeds. So it's not as if their alienation from God means that they just had some kind of lower appetite for the things of God and for righteousness. No, there's, there's no gray area when it comes with alienation from God. It's either righteousness or unrighteousness. It's in Adam, damned, or in Christ, blessed. It's either love of God or hate of God. And in our condition, we are enemies to God. Here's another way of connecting the mind and the will or doing evil deeds. Their alienation to God had taken control of their whole mind, that all that they did was stained by corruption. Nothing they could do could have any benefit towards righteousness, could have any merit. It was all stained, everything. This was their condition, and this is our condition. The mind, your mind, is of the flesh. Your nature was one of weakness and of sin. This is the human condition. Anti-God is our flesh. Anti-God. And I want to just park the bus right here for a minute and talk about this. In our natural state, Romans 6.20, we were free regarding righteousness. And we were alive apart from the law, Romans 7.9. This is not spiritual life. This was life in our own estimation. We could care less about God. We could care less about righteousness. We did what was right in our own eyes. And it was just that to us. It was right. But enmity with God was our theme song, and we rebelliously and arrogantly lived our lives to that song. All this is a matter of the heart. Our very soul, our very being was against God because we ultimately hate his righteousness. We hated his righteousness because it condemned us. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And of course, the famous Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, just for a second, because this is what I'm thinking. I remember being younger and hearing sermons like this as a teenager or, or as a child who understood the faith, thinking, I haven't really done that many bad things. I, there's no way that could describe me. It's not like I've killed anybody. I don't hate God. I've never told him I hated him. You know, this doesn't really describe me. I, haven't, I don't really have that experience. Well, number one, this is not about necessarily what we have done. It is who we are in Adam. It is our very nature. You do not have to go out and live all of the terrible things that the world has to offer to know that you, in your flesh, hate God. That's just who we are. It is who we are in in, in Adam. This describes our nature. It may not describe your life in this current moment, but it's who you are apart from Jesus. 
but also we grow up in America where morality is so high that everyone just thinks they're a good person. No one's killed anybody, and no one's done, you know, you fill in the blank, and therefore I'm a decent person. It doesn't matter how good you think you are in terms of our culture, our standard of morality. We, in our flesh, hate God. That's just what the scripture says. And just like we say, you know, trust Christ and calm down. Doesn't really matter how you feel. Trust Christ here too when he says that apart from him, this is who you are. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to experience it. The scriptures tell you this is us. This is us. This is you. This is me. It's a matter of identity in Adam or in Christ. And so verse 21 is a very simple definition of what it means to be a sinner. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We sin, we do evil deeds because we are sinners. We do evil things because we're evil. It's not our sin that corrupts us. We are corrupt in our nature and therefore we do evil deeds. And wickedness describes us. We are 100% unable to fellowship with God, the good creator who made us, who we were made to love and to cherish and to praise and to glory in. But in order to do that, we must have personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to God and conformity to his law. And as we just admitted, that's not us. Breaking the law is the fruit of our natural separation from God, and it deserves eternal life in death. God is holy, and we are guilty of breaking the whole law. The whole law, yes. James 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. We guilty. We are guilty before a holy God. In Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Numbers 14, God tells us from his holy word that he will by no means clear the guilty. All throughout the Proverbs, but for example, in 17, 15 and 24, 24, to justify the wicked is an abomination to God. This is why later Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Romans 2. If it hasn't sounded worse, or if it hasn't sounded that bad yet. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And again, as we just admitted, we've broken the whole entire law. We must have personal, perfect, perpetual obedience and conformity to his law, and we don't have it. I don't have it. You do not have it in and of yourself. Alienated, enmity with God, doing evil deeds. This is us. And Hebrews 19, 27 says that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. 
But get this, seemingly in opposition to all of what we just considered, we have these words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How about this one from Romans? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justifies the ungodly. We just read that that's an abomination to God. So is God inconsistent? Is he unfaithful to his own nature? Is he just going to look over sin? Because if he does, that would be inconsistent with who he is. And if God is mutable, if God can change, the whole thing crumbles. We might as well leave. But from eternity past, God the Father and his eternally begotten Son, same in essence and glory, made an agreement that the Son would come and reconcile all things making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 22, And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, above reproach. He has now reconciled. Paul is saying that he didn't just decide to forget about your evil, talking to these brothers and sisters. He didn't just sweep it all under the rug. No, Jesus reconciled you. Jesus reconciled us, beloved. Justification and ju- I mean, yeah, justification and reconciliation are synonymous terms. Justification speaks, though, to the more f- forensic or legal nature, like we are made right with God. Think about a court of law, think judicial. And reconciliation has a more general, maybe less qualified. Meaning, It speaks from the societal sphere. It's peace that's been established between two parties. Maybe seemingly irreconcilable parties. Peace has been made. Things are right. So in, in my summation, we've been justified before him and we are reconciled to him. So... Really what Paul is, is, is communicating here that over and against enmity, over and against alienation or separation from God, Paul is positively saying we have peace. No longer separated. There's no more enmity. There's peace. And this is not fruit of the Spirit peace, like we produce peace. This is, you are no longer an enemy of God, but you've been made his child. You have been made his friend. You are the apple of his eye. And this is all according to his plan. Reconciliation in a word from a brother, Herman Ritterboss, says, God turns the world in Christ God turns to the world in Christ. But Christ turns to God, offering himself up for the world. God turns to the world in Christ. And in our place, Christ turns back.
back to God so that we be so that we have peace. And to add to this, it wasn't up to us. It was God's plan and it was God's doing. Let's camp out here for a second. So like last week, you know, we discovered that God in Christ has removed all the enmity of the cosmos. All evil has been dealt with already, but not yet. It ha- it's under the feet of Jesus. He is Lord of creation. He's preeminent in all things, justified, vindicated by his resurrection. He's not yet established uh, eternity. He's not yet consummated all of redemption. But this is still true. Right? All of the, the, the problems, all of the corruption produced by the fall has been dealt with in Christ Jesus. That's verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And the peace made by the blood of Christ is the ultimate peace, in, in verse 20 here, that Romans 16 speaks of. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under the feet of his people. So this is looking towards the day when the Lord returns. But now here, Paul has in mind this personal nature of reconciliation. You know, our, our evangelical culture, it focuses reconciliation on um, our abandonment of our hostility toward God. It focuses so much so that reconciliation in part is an act of our own will. We think that we have done something to make peace with God. But we can't make the slightest move toward God. First, we don't want to see Romans 3. And secondly, those who are in the flesh, Romans 8, cannot please God. So how have we obtained this peace with God? Paul is clear here. You were alienated. You were hostile toward him. He has now reconciled. He has now reconciled. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled. We didn't do anything. 2 Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Something was done to us. Our guilt before God taken away. God removed the enmity. And it's in this, we, in this way that reconciliation is something that we receive. We receive peace with God. Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what's the point of all this? To sum it up, I think I already have. Reconciliation happened to us and without us. But how is this reconciliation possible? How was enmity removed and replaced with peace without God being unjust towards sin and evil? How does that just happen? Let's look at the next part of verse 22. In his body of flesh by his death. Body of flesh, the Lord Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, always existed, never created. He put on the same nature as you and as me. He put on a vile body, liable to many infirmities. Our King, our God, so that He could be our mediator. 
It was necessary that the Son of God become man and and be a partaker of our flesh so that he could be the second Adam, so that he could come to save the hell-bound man. And it was necessary for him to become man so that he could be a sacrifice in our place. The better Adam, he fulfilled the whole law so that not only those who were in him would be counted as righteous, but it vindicates the reality that he was not dying for his own sin. He was not punished for sin of his own, but yours. He was a propitiating offering to God in our favor. The just righteousness of God against our sin was satisfied in the death of his begotten son. For our sake, he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf so that we would be the righteousness of God, made to be sin. He was crushed by God the Father for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. God judged Christ Jesus and counts his people righteous by faith. On his account. Back to verse 22. By his death, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order what? To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. This is justification language here. And so in this way, reconciliation, peace with God is a result of justification. We are reconciled to God in the work of Christ Jesus. Holy. He presents us holy. This is positive righteousness. God looks at us through our mediator as if we had kept the whole law, get this, personally, perfectly, and perpetually, because that's what our covenant head, that is what our mediator did for you and for me. Blameless. We are without blemish. It's as if we had never sinned. It's the word that's also used in 1 Peter 1.19, Jesus as the lamb without blemish. And then above reproach. This is language of giving no occasion for being brought into a court of law. This is talking about life. This is talking about outward obedience. There's nothing in me that would need to be observed by the court of law because nothing is. I'm doing no wrong. This is referring to sanctification. It's perfect in Christ. We're counted with righteousness. It's as if we had never sinned and completely sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, We are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are boasting in the Lord right now. Finally, in his sight or before him, we have no need to fear. Right? The end of verse 22 there. In order to present you holy, blameless, above reproach before him. The Father, God of the universe. We go before him without fear because we go before him in Christ, holy, blameless, above reproach. We don't go before God 
and kind of hide in the corner and be thankful that we're even led near in the room. No, 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 no. Boldly, we approach the throne of God because we are in Christ, holy, blameless, above reproach. In the sight of God, and finally, when Christ appears, it is going to be our reality. Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We'll be like him and perishable. Moving on to verse 23 here. Continue in the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Immediately, I know that some of you read the word if, and, and, and there's just this fear that came into your soul. There's, there's a good dread that comes with the Christian life. But immediately when we read this, we're like, I knew it. There's a caveat. There's something that I'm going to have to offer, and I know that I don't have it. When I get there, I've, I've not done something. I know I'm going to see God, and this if thing is going to ruin me. So I didn't continue in the faith. Well, this is threatening, first of all, because we view continue in the faith primarily through making God happy with our obedience. We got in through grace, and now we got to stay in through law. That's how we read the word, if we continue in the faith. That's not correct, brothers and sisters. He's saying if you continue in the faith, because there's no other way that you're going to be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach, but in Christ Jesus. So if you don't continue in Christ Jesus, what hope do you have? Hope is only found in Him. So continue in Him. Don't try to find your righteousness in depriving yourselves of things. Don't find godliness in anything that you're doing or not doing in order to be presented holy and blameless. If you continue in the faith, here's what it says. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the gospel that you heard. From the hope of the gospel that you heard. What's verse 5 in chapter 1? Your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints because of this hope that is laid up for you in heaven. The way we live our Christian life is because of the hope we have. Here he's saying don't shift from the gospel because that's the only way you have hope. Don't shift from Jesus. Continue in the faith, saints. Continue not looking to yourself but to Christ. Not only for righteousness, but to empower you to put off the old and put on the new. Galatians 3.3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying no, so continue in the faith. We're going to come back to this uh, in our meditation, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And hear this, hear this word. Uh, just finishing up here. Sorry, lost a little steam there, but proclaimed in all creation under heaven, right? So continuing the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. It, what Christ did, his reconciling work, is such an objective reality that Paul uses language like this. Like, literally, the entire cosmos is made right in Christ Jesus. But not only that, it's for all people. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. 
No one is excluded from this message to hear it. That's what he's saying. This message is for the world, right? It's being proclaimed to Jews and Gentiles. It's being proclaimed to all of creation. He reconciled all things to himself. And he's reconciling his church to himself. And of course, we finish up here, of which Paul, I became a minister. This is, this is the way he identifies himself all over his epistles. I'm Paul, a minister of Christ Jesus. I'm Paul, a minister of the gospel of grace. This is his identity. And this is where he stakes his life, his ministry, his identity, to plead with the saints to continue in the faith. Do not shift from the hope of Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. And as we move forward here, we will continue in the faith by faith. That's what we're going to meditate on. We're going to continue in the faith by faith. So I move our attention now to spend time with, with whatever time we have left, demonstrating that the faith, excuse me, that faith is the means by which we've been reconciled to God, and faith is the means by which we live the Christian life. Now, public service announcement. Shout out JP. That's his language. I like it. Um, I will inevitably be dealing with sanctification next week. It's just, it's all over the text. Uh, so I'm not going to do that in detail today, although I really wanted to. Uh, because it's fun to talk about our freedom in Christ. So we'll just do that next week. Nonetheless, to understand how we have received reconciliation with God in Christ, we must see that reconciliation was accomplished by Christ a very long time ago. And it is applied to the believer in the here and now by faith. Jesus accomplished reconciliation over 2,000 years ago. And by the Spirit, by His power, it, that peace is applied to us and we are reconciled to God. So number one, we've got to define faith in this meditation of understanding how we receive reconciliation by faith, and we live the Christian life by faith. We have to define faith. And there have been so many descriptions of faith since the Reformation that, I mean, we almost despair trying to define it, trying to define it. You know, Rome said that it's this intellectual ascent, but then they make forgiveness of sins and eternal life dependent upon works. So it's like, well, that's not a good definition of faith at all. Just track through history. Let's just jump to now. Our culture, uh, which isn't new, says that Jesus has made salvation possible. And so now, with faith, you make an act of your own will, right? So faith is an act of your own will, which you make this decision for Christ where all the things that were possible for you to have, you could have. So Jesus made it possible, and it really just starts with you. That's That's faith. You accepting Jesus. Now, do we accept Jesus? Yes. But once you're in it, right? Now I say, I've, I've made this choice. Now I'm in Christ. Yay. Now, once you're in it, it's all about what you do for him. This is our culture. When we start talking about faith, this is why we look at the word, if you continue, and we, and we just have fear. Because number one, we've been taught that we, we've done this, we've started this Christian life, and now we've got to keep ourselves in it. So Jesus died for you, now what are you going to do for him? This is what we think. One writer says that if the Christian life is all about our obedience to the law, and it's all about our re resolute determination to do better, then we fall victim to a bigger theological problem. The exaltation of our works. 
We make more of ourselves than we ought. And this pride pushes into our theology. And the logic goes like this. If God is mad at me because of my sin, then he's going to be happy at me because of my works. The ancient theologians called this the opinio legis, the opinion of the law. Instead of that, Christ did as he promised to do in us. He freed us to enjoy God truly, to love and obey truly. It is as if God is handing out, excuse me, messed that all up. It's going to start over here. Instead of having this mindset that Christ promised to do this in us, he has brought us to life, he will sanctify us, and we enjoy freedom, life unto righteousness in him. Instead of that, it's like God is handing out evaluations at the end of every day. And so at the forefront of our minds is us, what we are doing. And so then we say, if you continue in the faith, oh gosh, I hope I can do this. It's not about you. This is our problem with our definition of faith. This is not biblical faith, and this is not a biblical description of the Christian life or the gospel's purpose. What makes the Christian life is not your obedience and your commitment. The same author that I just read from says, American Christianity has moved the gospel from the center to the side. At best, it makes the gospel the motivation for our works. And at worst, the gospel is understood as a demand for us to do better. This point that I'm making here is not that you don't need to talk about, think about, or try to be obedient. If you're hearing that, don't hear that. You have been brought from Adam into Christ so that you are finally free to actually do all of those things from a sincere, believing, hoping, resting, trusting heart, never shifting from the hope of the gospel. There is a difference. There is a difference. And so what makes the Christian life is that your life is hidden with God in Christ. It is his loving kindness. It is his steadfast love that is on the forefront of our minds. Paul tells us when he defines faith that it is a gift from God by which you receive all the benefits of Christ. Ephesians 2. So to understand how we've received reconciliation with God by Christ, we must see that reconciliation was accomplished by Christ a long time ago. So we just finished up understanding that faith is not something I do. Faith is something, is a gift by which I receive all that Christ has done. It's not a work I do. It's not an act I do. It's a gift by which I receive all of Christ's benefits. Now, let's understand what Christ did. What did we receive? Number one, he did it a long time ago, right? All the benefits of salvation are secured by Christ. They're present in Christ. And he himself, by his spirit, applies them to us by faith. Our salvation is not conditioned upon our faith or our conversion. Reconciliation is something that God did in Christ. This is why 2 Corinthians that we read earlier, 5.19, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. The work of Christ, which happened a long time ago, God was reconciling the world to himself in the work of Jesus, not counting their trespasses against them. Again, we read it earlier, Romans 4.25. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. That happened. And he was raised for our justification. He is raised. And he's at the right hand of the Father. So reconciliation and justification has been done. 
And so the gospel message is this. God has been reconciled. Accept this reconciliation. Believe the gospel. The only thing is we can't. So he brings us to life to want Jesus. He brings us to life by his spirit to believe the gospel. He brings us to life by faith. We receive everything that Christ Jesus did. He did something when he died and rose again. Reconciliation and justification. It was accomplished. And he has brought us alive in time and space. And that is ours by faith. This only exists in Christ. These benefits that I'm talking about, they don't exist outside of him. He is the mediator of the covenant of grace, and only those who are united to him receive these gifts. Faith and conversion. You did want Christ. You did choose Christ. You did one day not love him and all of a sudden love him. You one day didn't care about sin and all of a sudden you're guilty of it. All of that is a part of conversion. It is a part of God regenerating you bringing you to life. We can't hear the gospel with receptive ears lest we be alive. He makes us alive and we receive him and we are reconciled. So faith and conversion are just the means by which the work of Christ, which was accomplished over 2,000 years ago, planned in eternity past in the mind of God, is applied to us. This is why our baptism is important. I didn't, I didn't see all this happening. I don't know when God brought me to life. I'm not sure when my heart all of a sudden loved God and accepted his God. I don't, I don't know. All I know is I, I didn't want him, and now I'm just I'm guilty, and he's my righteousness, and he is my forgiveness, and he's all. And I have life in him. And the church baptizes me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've been buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Baptism is a sign of what Christ has done. It's a sign that he was faithful to do what he said he would do. Bring me to life in Christ. So I can't see my regeneration story. Maybe it happened over a few years. I don't know. But my baptism is a sign that God was faithful and he brought me to life. I didn't want him. Now I want him. And it's a sign that he's going to keep me. And so now we together cling to Christ through the gathering of the church, through the preaching of his word. And we come to this table with this promise that this is how we continue in the faith, saints. We're doing it. We are continuing in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And we come to this table receiving the same way you received life and eternal life and hope in the gospel. This is proof of that. We come up here and we eat of the bread. We drink of the wine. We just eat it and drink it. It's given to us. That's the simple way that God brought you to life. You received it. You received it. Reconciliation is going out from God in Christ to the world. Removing enmity and replacing it with peace. And that peace is given to us by union with Christ, by faith. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And he saved his people. He accomplished reconciliation. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Well, it doesn't feel that way. I don't care what you feel. It's true. Your heart might, your heart might condemn you. God doesn't. When temptations from within you pound your mind and your heart, like where is this crap coming from? 
The mercy of God is deeper than the ocean. When depression cripples you and your family, God will never leave you nor forsake you. I know you don't feel it. I don't care about that either. He didn't promise you would feel it. It's your reality. You are never alone. When cancer destroys a life, I don't have a promise that he's going to make the pain go away, but I do offer to you a Savior who suffers in with you, who is closer than a sibling. He promises that he is working all things for the eternal good of his bride. When it feels like the light of your faith is all but out, like you've been beaten with trial and tribulations and you're not sure really what's going to happen next. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The king of the universe could literally break all of existence, but he will not break the weakest in his flock. He will handle you with such care Yeah, it's like the flame has gone out and all that's left is the smallest, tiniest speck of orange on a smoldering wick. The slightest of disturbances could just put it out. Our gentle Savior will nurture and repair you with surgical precision. When belief is there, but it's not seeming to make a difference, His grace is sufficient for you. Again, I don't care what it seems like. His power is made perfect in weakness. These are objective truths. When the guilt of your sin is suffocating you because the enemy has plenty of ammo, God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Asking for forgiveness is a matter of is not a matter, matter of whether God's going to forgive you or not. You are in Christ. Asking for forgiveness reminds you that He has forgiven you. When shame and insecurity seem to become your identity, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. It's not what you feel. I get it. But it is who you are. You may feel insecure. You may feel like you are in Adam, so to speak, beaten by the world. But you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, holy, blameless, above reproach. You mean God's not mad at me? Child in Christ Jesus, he will never be angry with you again. I'm scared I'm going to mess it up. He can't. God is leading you, and he disciplines those he loves. Plus, you're not big enough to mess up his plan anyway. And as we conclude, we come to receive the supper. These are the last few things. Augustine said, already loving us, he reconciled us to himself. Because he first loved us, he afterward reconciled us to himself. He loves us. That is why you and I have peace with him. The Father's love results in your peace with him. Now I want to read a few verses and pray for us. 
from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray.